to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we're in our series in the book of Luke, but uh, this week we're taking kind of a jump backwards. Um, Some of you may remember that um, we skipped over Luke 6 when we got to it because Pastor Brady had had so graciously offered me the chance to speak out of Luke 6 um, because of of the the book that I had written on the Beatitudes called Lucky. And, and so he said, why don't you come, we'll save the Beatitudes in Luke 6, we'll save it for when uh, you speak on a Sunday morning and then you can uh, teach on it. So I, I did this morning and I spoke out of one of the first Beatitude in Luke 6, blessed are the poor, uh, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And tonight I want to do a different one, I want to do blessed are those who mourn. Now, I appreciate the chance to, to teach on this uh, and, and, and the, the, the whole thing with the book doesn't mean that I'm an expert on the Beatitudes. Uh, in fact, you'll, you'll see that I'm not uh, very shortly. But the point is that I have been mulling over this and thinking about this quite a bit over the last couple of years and, and just sort of uh, processing this and studying this. And so tonight, when we talk about this, uh, blessed are you who weep now. And this is going to be uh, maybe a more difficult one to talk about because of the nature of this. So let's just, let's just I pray that the Spirit of God will guide us as we, as we uh, listen to this word together. Um, when you think about uh, the people that you look at, the people that you admire, the people that you think, yeah, they've got it good, uh, who are those people? Who are the people that we value, that we embrace, that we praise? Uh, when you think about, I, I mentioned this morning, when you think about the magazine covers in our culture, you think of the person that is self-made or the one who pulls them up by the bootstraps. In America, if we were to write our version of the Beatitudes, we'd say, blessed are the self-reliant, you know, uh, because they're the ones that get it done. They're the ones that, sh- that really blaze the trail, and we love that, you know. And yet Jesus's idea of who the lucky ones are, who the ones are that are truly blessed, uh, is really quite the opposite. Now, this Beatitudes thing is an interesting section because when you read Matthew's Beatitudes, he gives, for one, twice as many as Luke does. He gives eight Beatitudes instead of four. But secondly, Matthew gives us the option or or, or leads us in a way of reading the Beatitudes in a very spiritual way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so we're we're led to sort of think, okay, yes, this is great and all this stuff. But Luke is pretty sparse. Luke simply says, and, and, and let's read this together, Luke 6, verse 20 to 23. Luke said, and then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and insult you and reject you as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and jump for joy. Because your reward is great in heaven. I always wondered, you know, what it would sound like if we wrote a dancing worship song, uh, you know, that made us jump for joy because people hate us. Still don't know if that would go over as well, but Jesus said, jump for joy when they reject you and exclude you and insult you. 
You know, I am rejected. Anyway, okay. Rejoice in that day and jump for joy because your reward is great in heaven when for their ancestors did the same things to the prophets. Now this word blessed uh, is an interesting word because the word that Jesus chose here is not the religious word. He had a religious word available to him. He had a word that would have uh, very clearly meant or indicated that God was blessing someone. There was that word. That word was used, is used in other parts of the New Testament. But the word that Jesus chooses to use is, if you will, a street word. It's a word from everyday conversations in Greek. In fact, in other secular Greek writings, this word, makarios, is used to describe the bliss of the gods. It's sort of this ideal place, the, one who, the ones who've got it made. And in conversation and in other writings, they would say, look, to the parents who have children that are successful and that are smart and all this stuff, oh, how fortunate are the parents. And so there are other beatitudes that are non-biblical, that are, that are outside of this text, that are the pagan use of, or non-Christian uh, sort of use of this word, where they're talking about it as in the people who are fortunate, the people who have it good. If we were Australians, we might say, good on you, mate. Now, this was sort of the, the feeling of it, the good for you, the, the people who are, wow, they've got it good. And, and maybe in our sort of everyday language, we might say, well... Lucky. Lucky you. Kind of almost, you know, if you've watched this a couple years ago, maybe a little Napoleon Dynamite-ish, you know, like lucky, you know, just sort of the sense of wow. Now, if you're, if you're like me, something kind of raises up the hair in the back of your neck and you're like, oh, hey man, I don't like this word lucky. And I want to be clear to say, I don't mean it in terms of randomness or chance. I don't mean it in terms of a lucky charm. But I do mean it as we say it conversationally. Someone who's had something surprising and good and undeserved happen to them. And you say, gee, how'd you get so lucky? You know, that sort of a way. And still that word kind of, again, it's unsettling because it means that maybe we had nothing to do with this. Uh, If you were to say to someone who's worked hard uh, to get to where they are and you say, well, of course you got that because you got a few lucky breaks. People resist that. Hey, hey, man, hey, I, I didn't get lucky. I worked for this. The famous story of the South African golfer Gary Player who, uh, in an interview w- w- with a journalist, was sort of insinuating that he had had quite a few lucky shots go his way in a particular tournament. And he said, well, you know what? I find that the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> you know? As if to say, hey, man, don't call it luck. This is preparation plus opportunity or whatever, you know, like some sort of successory that you'd post. We resist this word because it implies that there's something undeserved, something surprising about it, and yet that's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying that these particular people are the lucky ones. And it's strange because when you look at this list, those who are poor, those who are weeping, those who are hungry, those who are rejected, he's clearly picking a list of people that by all standards, by all counts of everyone else's opinions, don't belong in any list of that sort. These are people that when you were to say, okay, yeah, well, those are sort of the outsiders. Those are the fringe people. Those are the folks who don't have anything good happen to them. These are the guys that are misfits and they don't really belong. And so, whoa, you know. And yet Jesus says, let me tell you something. And he's looking at this crowd, which includes some Gentiles, Luke tells us. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, let me say to you, The ones who are poor, you're lucky. 
The ones who are weeping, you're lucky. But you have to say, okay, well, well why? Are they, are they blessed because they're poor? Are they blessed because they're crying? Are they blessed because they're hungry? Is, is, like, is it more spiritual to be starving? What is Jesus saying? You come to realize that in Luke, this version of the Beatitudes, the, the place of emphasis in the phrase is not in the beginning part, but in the second part. It's not on the first half, but on the second half. You're not blessed because you're poor, or you're not blessed because you're hungry. You're blessed because in spite of being the poor, or in spite of being the hungry, or in spite of being the weeping, or in spite of being the rejected, listen, the kingdom has come to you. And so it's not a because of, but it's a in spite of. Look, even though you're the ones that are on the fringe, that are marginalized, even though, and we, we talked about this morning, even though you're the weak and the powerless, the poor and the broken, even though you are that, the kingdom has come to you. Jesus is bringing his rule to you. And we begin to turn our attention and say, okay, so not the first part of the phrase, but the second part of it. This is where the, the focus is. Now, I need to point something else out to you about Luke's Beatitudes. Out of this list of four, the first and the last one appear to be present realities happening now. Blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom, right? And the last one, when men reject you, for great is your reward. Your reward is great. It's being stored up even now. And then these middle two, the hungry and the weeping, have this tone of future. And it's not just will be fed or will be filled as in assurance, but it's also the sense of this word is future. So he says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Something is coming. Tonight, to focus in on this third one, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. There's so much to say about this phrase because when you put the, when, if you were to say lucky are those who weep, it just sounds cruel. It just sounds really cheap and really frivolous of me to do that. Oh, that's just terrible. How can you say lucky are those who weep? Have you ever wept, Glenn? Don't you know? And yet there's this sense of what is Jesus doing here when he's saying, look, to the ones who weep, let me tell you why you are fortunate. Because there's something that's coming that's stronger than what is. I want us to look for a moment at how these words would have felt to the group of people listening to him. Israel's story, uh, sadly enough, is a, is a story of tears and a story of sorrows. I think, again, you know, we, we read the scriptures sometimes with rose-colored lenses, and we remember the flannel graph stories, and we remember, oh, remember the victory about Goliath, remember this, and remember this, remember that. But if you were really to sit down and plot out the story of Israel, it's a sad story. It's a story of a lot of oppression, and it's a story of a lot of suffering and sadness. It begins when Abraham leaves his father's house and then is wandering. You know, he's sort of this wanderer following the leading of God. And then he, he comes to this king who he feels so threatened by that Abraham lies about his wife, Sarah. You remember this? And he says, oh, no, no, she's, she's my sister. You know, great man of faith right there, isn't he? 
And already, right from the get-go, here's Abraham feeling fear and feeling pushed in. And then you have Isaac and you have Jacob, and Jacob's story is one of, of tragic relationships with his brother. He, he cheats his brother out of the birthright, and then he's estranged from him and goes to work for his uncle Laban, and he thinks he's doing good, and he's going to get one wife, and he's tricked. I mean, this is the stuff of, like, daytime soaps, you know? I mean, it's really... But you see that Jacob's life was not smooth sailing. What does it mean to be the chosen people? Oh, apparently lots of suffering and sorrow. And so Jacob gets tricked with Laban. He comes back and he does get really successful. And he comes back and he meets Esau and all this stuff. And then you fast forward and you get to Joseph, the second youngest brother and loved by his dad, all the favor in the world. And his brothers sell him as a slave. He gets taken to Egypt, and you're thinking, what is going on? Where's the promise? Where's the, where's the destiny? Where's the purpose of God unfolding for my life? And, Jay, and, I, and Joseph moves to Egypt, and he's, you know, he's, he spends some time in the prison, and then he gets uh, promoted and has all this good stuff happen to him. He interprets a dream, and, and then his family moves, and you think, wonderful, a happy ending. The whole, all the brothers of Joseph come and they move and they live together and they can eat together. Woohoo! But Genesis doesn't end there. Genesis says, and then another Pharaoh arose in the land of Egypt who did not remember Joseph and says, what are all these Hebrews doing here? Let's get them to work. It makes them slaves. And again, here they are being squeezed out, being oppressed. And then Moses gets raised up as the deliverer and he rescues them. And again, another epic movie moment until they go to the wilderness and they're wondering how they're going to eat and drink and they're wandering and wandering and then because of their own rebellion, a whole generation dies in the desert and this other generation comes up and then you think, okay, well, the promised land. That sounds good. That sounds promising, right? And they get in the promised land and just when you think the end and they lived happily ever after, no, not quite because they find themselves pushed and oppressed and, and, and besieged by the neighboring nations See, we read the Old Testament with Israel as the main character because that's, it's them telling us their story. But if you were to really look at the history of the ancient world, Israel's like the little kid who's trying to read a book on the football field during lunch break and all the bigger kids are running, running him over all the time. You've got Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and all these other nations and Israel's getting pushed around. And you have these stories of their good kings and bad kings and then... There are the Assyrians that come and take them and scatter them. And then the Babylonians come and get Judah, take them into captive. Israel's story is a story of exile and tears and sorrow. If you miss this about the Bible, you have a tendency to read the Bible as a triumphalist story. A tale of how God chooses a people and blesses them and they live happily ever after. But that's not the Old Testament. The story of Israel is a story of sadness and difficulty and and being pushed around and sometimes being obedient, sometimes being woefully disobedient. Always, always, always crying. Always feeling like they are in exile. And so when you fast forward to this time of Jesus and Jesus says, I've come to bring good news for those who mourn. In their ears, they would have heard, thank you. They would have, maybe in their hearts, they would have said, thank you, because we've been mourning for a long time. We've been in exile. 
Lamentations, in a different chapter than the reading we heard tonight. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. Does this sound like your best life now to anybody? All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, and her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins, and her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. No doubt so many of Israel's suffering were directly because of their rebellion and their sin, no doubt. What began to be a favorite book, a favorite scroll for the, for the Jews as they waited for God's hope, as they waited for God's comfort and God's deliverance was Isaiah. In fact, I've told you this a few times, but the Qumran community, this, this group of people that, uh, we've just, that have preserved all these copies of the Old Testament books that we discovered several decades ago called the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the, the books that they had the most copies of were Deuteronomy to remind themselves that they were covenant people. God, remember you said... And then Isaiah, because it was this book of hope in the midst of their sadness. And one of the most famous passages in Isaiah is this one. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. It's a, it's a prophecy about the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, the chosen one who will come. And it says this because the Lord has anointed me to preach, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Here's the, ver- the phrase, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. That's the very passage that Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Luke 4 and read from. And what he means, what he meant to say to those people is, hey, I am here. You're mourning. You've been in exile. You're in sorrow. You're weeping. I am the promised one. I've come. It's finally here. The nightmare is almost here. And so this good news begins to resonate and echo. What does that mean for us even now? Because Jesus' words in this chapter, Luke 6, is still future. Those who weep now, for you will laugh. It doesn't, he's not saying, stop weeping. Begin to laugh, everybody, on the count of three. He says, no, you're weeping now. It's real. It's true. But there's something that's already begun to come. When I think about how we enter this text and how we see ourselves as continuing the Israel story, I think of this phrase, to mourn is to protest. To mourn is to protest. If you've ever experienced tragedy or sadness or despair in your life, everything inside of you kicks 
and screams and says, no, 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 this cannot be. No, this should not be. And I want to say to you as gently as I can tonight that that's okay. That part of what it means to mourn is this protest. If you feel that to, as a Christian, to mourn means you all of a sudden have to just accept something and be okay with it. But that's not really true. That mourning is a protest. It is to say, oh, come on. This is not supposed to happen. And you're right. It's not. Because I think part of the protest, part of protesting it, is actually a witness in and of itself. To mourn is to protest, but to protest is to give witness to a better reality. How do you know this is not supposed to be? What is it in you that says, whoa, no, a child is not supposed to die at that age, or wait, this is... What is it in us that knows the protest, the pushback? Why? Because the protest itself is a witness to a better reality. Maybe somewhere in us, because of the Imago Dei, because of the image of God, maybe there's something left over of God's image in us that we remember, hey, no, this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't supposed to be. And part of that protest is in itself a reminder that we are no longer in Eden. See, Israel knew what it meant to live in exile, didn't they? They felt like they were in exile under the Romans, even though they were in their own land. They couldn't be their own people in their own land. And listen, here we are as the people of God, and yet doesn't it seem like we're still waiting in exile? Doesn't it feel sometimes that even though God the Creator is King of the world by right, that by reality all is not, all does not unfold in the way he designed this world to be. Something's amiss. We've been kicked out of Eden. We ourselves are in exile. And to mourn is to protest. And to protest is to admit that. It's to admit that all is not well. All is not right. But you know, there's something beautiful about Jesus. Because Jesus joins us in our mourning. You think of the season of Lent. This is a, a great mystery to me because we fast in Lent to remember Christ's suffering. But Christ's suffering was a way of entering into your suffering. That's a great mystery. How is that? I'm fasting to remember Christ's suffering, and yet all of his suffering was a way of entering our suffering. The most beautiful thing about our God is He doesn't speak comfort from afar. He doesn't shout answers from a distance. He doesn't scream formulas from heaven. This God enters into the broken world. We stand here in the season leading up to Easter with looking at this bare wooden cross and we're meant to remember 
that every bit of the brokenness and hurt and suffering that we sense in this life, Jesus endured. Jesus experienced. It's okay. He cried as a baby. I'm serious. I mean, I, I don't, I'm okay with that. Don't feel conscious about this. This is the reality of life. Jesus was not this baby that showed up, you know, and, and went through his life with, like, white gloves on, you know. He worked as a carpenter, for goodness sake. Rough hands. Some of his favorite stories were about manure and soil. When he was risen, the women mistook him for a gardener. Maybe a good mistake, because he's quite used to getting his hands dirty in the soil of our lives. Jesus joins us in our mourning. He enters into our brokenness. He steps into our suffering. But it doesn't end there. It's difficult, I know, in, in Lent, where, you know, maybe by, by a lot of traditions, you're not supposed to say you know, the resurrection or talk about it yet, but I think here's the thing. We are living post-resurrection, so even as we are reenacting this lowering of ourselves, we see the light of Easter already breaking in. We can almost sense it. We're getting closer. Wait, it's April 3rd, three weeks from today. It's Easter Sunday. There's something more that's happening to the story that Jesus Yes, he enters into our suffering, but his death is not just an act of empathy. It does mean that he understands our brokenness and our sin. But on him was laid every weight of our sin and of our brokenness, of the suffering and sadness and sorrow and evil in the world. Jesus not only joins us in our suffering, but he took the weight of evil on himself at the cross, rising in victory over it. Rising in victory over it. Resurrection is quite different than resuscitation. People tend to make this mistake when they talk about Jesus being raised from the dead and they say, well, so, that's pretty cool, but no, it's kind of a, wasn't that like God's standard party trick, you know, like, didn't Elijah do a few of those? And there was Lazarus, you know. All of those before Jesus had been brought back to life in a way that would be more accurate to say was resuscitation. They were brought back to this life with this body only to die again someday. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he becomes, his body is reconstituted into something different. The disciples go to great lengths to tell us about this, how he can eat with them and yet he can suddenly appear through walls. Something's the same and something is different. Resurrection is something new. Resurrection is something unprecedented. Resurrection is not just God saying, okay, he died, okay, time to game over, you know, let's go, come on, Jesus, come on. No, resurrection is something surprising, something brand new. Paul talks about it in a few different ways in a couple of his letters to the Corinthians. I want to read. A few verses to you. His second letter to the Corinthians, we heard the message version of it in our New Testament reading tonight. I'm going to read it to you from the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 
Skip down to verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. This, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Is this a throwaway line for Paul? We were counting on, not on ourselves, but we were counting on God. Let's add a descriptive phrase here. Uh, God who, let's see, what rhymes with the old songwriter trick, you know? Death, eth, feth. Oh, oh, God who raises the dead. No, Paul's not using a throwaway line. He's picking a line on purpose. He's saying, look, we despaired. We were in the lowest place. We felt death itself coming on us. But then we realized the God that we serve is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And then we remembered that the God that we serve is the God who did something surprising and fresh and new and broke the curse of death because he raised Jesus from the dead. Our sorrow is temporary, but our comfort is eternal and irreversible. Here's the remarkable thing about resurrection. Resurrection is not compensation for death. Think about this for a moment. Resurrection is not compensation for death. It's not as if someone dies and says, oh, well, that was too bad. Would you like a sticker? When you think even logically, resurrection to the kind of life, the kind of body that will not die again is not compensation for death. It's the reversal of it, the complete and final defeat of it. It's the undoing of it. It's God saying, death has reigned. But, the, but resurrection is me saying, mm, death is now defeated. It's not compensation for death. It's the reversal of it, the complete and final defeat of it. Here's why 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, in his earlier letter to the Corinthians, said this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is a huge phrase, huge phrase. It means that Jesus being raised from the dead was just the beginning. Whoa, whoa. So, so nothing like this had ever, ever happened before and something surprising and new had happened to Jesus. But wait, you're saying he's the first fruits? For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Can I say something? To you about when God will defeat death. Because Paul goes on in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 to say that when Christ comes, he will reign until all his enemies have been defeated, and the last enemy to be defeated is death. Some of us have been told this phrase as Christians that death has already lost its sting. And then we don't know at a funeral if we should cry or be happy. 
And I understand why there's a bit of both. Of course, there is some of that. But do you know, right now, currently, death is still an enemy. It is that. It is still an enemy. It says when he returns, the last enemy to be defeated is death. That means at the moment, there is permission to mourn. There is permission to grieve. There's no such death, no such thing as a death that's okay. Because no one was meant to die. Adam and Eve were not made to die. And I think we wrestle with this. When we think of a person cut down in the bloom of youth, and we think, okay, well, that's really sad, but you know, maybe an older person, you know, and we, yeah, we wrestle, they've had a full life, and yet, yeah, and yet, but why am I so sad? You know why we're so sad? Because death is an enemy. And if nothing else, there is permission to say it's a vile enemy. Let's not trick ourselves into making death a friend. Oh, well, death is such a sweet chariot. Swing low. Pick me up. Can't wait. Sweep by and by. Furthermore, heaven is not the defeat of death. Think about it. Heaven is where they rest and worship and be with God, the scene in Revelation. But Paul just told us, each in his turn, right? When does resurrection happen for all the saints? What did we just read? When Christ comes. Now, this is exciting to me because that means there is a reason to keep hoping that even the ones that we love who are with the Lord are still hoping from a place of rest while we hope from a place of exile, but we're all longing for the same day, and it's the day when Jesus returns. Heaven can't be the defeat of death. That's like getting your butt kicked by the bully at school and your dad picking you up and saying, yeah, I won the fight. You didn't win the fight. You just left. Winning the fight is when dad comes back the next day and says, show me who that guy is. So it's time. And that's what it is when Jesus returns and says, okay, where's this enemy of death? Where is it? Come on, let's get it. Boom. Resurrection into life. And then in that day, they will say, death has been swallowed up in victory. That's future. That's coming. My hope today is not to put a nice, pretty kind of ribbon on this and say, so God bless you. Because living in this in-between waiting place is hard. Because we do mourn. We do protest. And we do long. We long for Jesus to come and finish it. Finish this thing that he accomplished at the cross to enact, to, to, to come make, act out what he achieved. To bring to pass what he accomplished on the cross. See, there's two times, and I think charismatics don't talk about this enough, but there's two times that Jesus says it, it is done or it is finished. Both times are recorded by John. 
One is in John's Gospel where Jesus on the cross says, It is finished. There's another time in Revelation 21, also John, and it's Jesus the glorious who's returned and says, Behold, I'm wiping every tear from every eye, and death is no more, and I'm making all things new, and heaven and earth are made new. It is done. That's an it is finished that is coming. That's a future and final and irreversible defeat of death. That, my friends, is why blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh. You will laugh one day. Not here in this age, but in the age to come. Maybe if we were to try to put it in our language, we'd say, lucky are those whose best life is not now. For what's coming is better than what is. Lucky are those whose best life is not now. I don't want my be- this to be my best life. You know why? Because what Jesus will unfold at his return is far, far better than this. So you can live through the rest of these Beatitudes. Okay, come on, bring on the rejection from the world. Bring on the insults. Bring on the twisting of our words by others who don't understand. Bring it on, because great is my reward. And it's okay if there's hunger, and it's okay if there's sorrow, because even though I weep now, I will laugh. Blessed are those whose best life is not now, for what's coming is better than what is. Let's pray. I realize that a talk like this may open up some wounds that maybe are still fresh for many of you. And I, I, Please know I, it's not my goal to um, pull your heartstrings or make you kind of just sad just because. But I really do want all of us to know that there is permission to mourn, permission to weep now. Because our weeping is laced with this hope, with this longing. And our hope is not that one day we'll have compensation. Our hope is not that one day God will give us all stickers and ice cream and say, sorry about that. But that our hope is that Jesus, the Messiah, will one day finish this, bring his kingdom fully on earth as it is in heaven, and say, not compensation, but restoration. Recreation, resurrection. Our Father, we are broken. We're weak. Jesus, we're so grateful that you came. We're so grateful that you are acquainted with our sorrows, a man of many afflictions. We're so thankful that you know what it's like to be hungry, poor, weeping, and rejected. 
you've lived each of these beatitudes. So Holy Spirit, let the life of God break in. Thank you, Jesus, that on the cross you took the weight of our sin, the weight of suffering and the weight of our brokenness and the weight of all that is sick and twisted and evil in this world. You took the weight of it, carried it, triumphed over it. Thank you that your resurrection speaks of a new beginning, a new hope. Thank you that we have such a great and marvelous hope that what's coming is so much better than what is, and it's not an escape, and it's not compensation, but it's this great, great defeat of death, reversal of it. Lord, for all of us here with heavy hearts, by your Spirit, would you bring comfort into our hearts. All of us here with sadness, we've lost ones that we love. We know what that's like. Spirit of Christ, you are in us. Breathe your comfort into our hearts. Breathe your hope even in the midst of our sadness. Teach us to long for the great day of Jesus' appearing, the great and glorious return, the final triumph, the final defeat. We say with the words of the old saints, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name, amen.